so it's extra lonesome and I think extra stressful in the biotech because you're not just talking about revenues and earnings and shareholder value. You're actually talking about people's lives and, and quality of life. That's the voice of Saeed Zarabian, President and Chief Executive Officer of Kentara Therapeutics, headquartered in San Diego. Listen in now to hear Saeed's thoughts about leadership and how Kentara Therapeutics is pursuing development of new cancer therapies for patients with rare unmet medical needs. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Saeed Zarabian, President and CEO of Kentara Therapeutics, headquartered in San Diego. Thanks for speaking with me today, Saeed. It's a pleasure to meet you, John, and to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. Saeed, what's it like to be a CEO? There is a certain level of loneliness to it because you wake up Monday morning and you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You have the employees in biotech, you have patients, which adds a completely different layer. It's an incredibly gratifying and lonesome job. Uh, it's it's uh, even more so as a biotech company, as a biotech CEO. I've been in the product business and, you know, you sell a product, somebody uses a piece of software to do some analysis and there's a certain um, success associated with that. But here, especially as an oncology uh, biotech, we are worrying and thinking and considering patient lives. We get intimately involved as CEOs with these patients who call us personally to get on our expanded access program. And it's... Uh, gratifying, but it's also devastating because you see firsthand patients, especially in our market where glioblastoma, the most deadly brain disease, and, and you know uh, the physicians and the patients consider it a death sentence because the median survival is 18 months. Less than 5% of patients make it five years. So it's extra lonesome and I think extra stressful in the biotech because you're not just talking about revenues and earnings and shareholder value. You're actually talking about people's lives and, and quality of life. And that adds a layer to it that makes it even, I think, more complicated. What led you to the role the role that you're in now, what led you to this role as uh, president and CEO at Kentara? Uh, it's a great question, John. As most of my last 20 years worth of endeavors, it's one of those things where one thing led to the other. I retired in the year 2000 after a very successful endeavor at a company, and I went right back to work in three weeks as a board member and then became involved as an executive. And that same thing happened here at Kentara. I actually joined in July of 2017 as an independent board member. And uh, in a few months, the board decided that I had the skill set required to take the company to the next stage. And they asked if I would come out of retirement and take on the role. And I actually agreed initially on an interim period because we wanted to make sure that we could align our visions and strategy together. And then I took the permanent role in May of 2018, and I'm now working at the requisite 80 to 100 hour a week to try and get at least one, if not two drugs to the market. And I think what the board saw was my turnaround capabilities. I'm a very active board member. Sometimes the CEOs um, I work with don't like that, but most of the sophisticated ones do because it's an extra set of hands and experience. And in this case, the board thought that my turnaround experience would be optimal for the company. And, uh, and I decided I could join and indeed make the impact that, that the company needed. 
And most importantly for me, I always take on things that are challenging. I just have this, uh, uh, my mother was an entrepreneur um, in Iran in 1952, so I learned a lot about her. And uh, one lesson was if you take jobs uh, in companies that are 98% efficient, who's going to know what you did? Is anybody going to recognize you made them 99% efficient? But if you take troubled companies, even a 50, 70, 80% improvement strategically helps the company. And that's what I've been doing for the past 20 some odd years. Do you remember that interval, that three week interval? Do you remember what you were thinking when you were saying, I'm retired. I really don't know if I want to go back. You know, I think my wife would be a better candidate to answer that. But yeah, I explicitly remember it was I I retired Christmas of uh, 2000. And I told her and we were ecstatic. Uh, I was started playing golf, although I played golf a little bit. I started playing golf every day. And I swear to God, this is the truth. My wife will vouch for this. Three weeks later, I happened to get a call from a friend of mine who says, listen, uh, I'm in San Diego. I have a little troubled company that can really use your help. Would you come on as COO? And I told them, I am so bored playing golf. I'll take anything. And I go tell my wife and the curious, interesting comment she made was, I've been meaning to think about, talk to you about that. You got to get the hell out of the house. <laughs> so, so go do something other than golf. So that's how it came about. And this is the real, this is how it happened. Having been a board member, having been in the industry in many different ways, how did you go about deciding, well, I want to get I want to be the guy again. I want to be the CEO. Was that at all a difficult decision? Uh, No, I think from early, early days, uh, even when I had my first major job at Computer Vision, this is back in 1978, I always aspired to have a senior executive role leadership position. I have that innate leadership built into me, you know, as a desire. Um, So I chose a different path. I decided to go into a company and then take on different roles and different experiences. So I first started in customer support. From there, I went into quality assurance. Then from there, I went into head of R&D. And then that led to a VP level, chief operating officer level. And that led to the CEO role. And it was because I worked in sales. I ran marketing. I ran every department. And that helped me be able to gather the right people around myself because I knew the right questions to ask and also be able to read when people were BSing us and then kind of uh, be, be, be careful on what you rely on as facts. So it came as a strategic plan early, formed early on and a thoughtful process of how do I enable myself to get there because I don't have the two basic foundational requirements of being a deep scientist running a biotech, nor was I, had I run a multi-billion dollar sales organization when I started. I now have, so that helps me in this role. Was there something about Kintara, uh, Del Mar, which became Kintara, was there something about the company that made you think, I can do something here that I can't do someplace else? You know, you're now getting to the personal side rather than the business or the professional side. And yes, there was. I had been involved in multiple biotech that had worked on different kinds of drugs for a couple of decades, with the last one being La Jolla, where we actually put, uh, were successful in getting a new drug approved. Uh, This was different because this was GBM. Uh, 
and I read on GBM and I see how devastating that disease is and, and I've had cancer in my family so I know how it is. Luckily it didn't lead to anyone's death but you know it's still devastating. And when, you, when I found out about the disease and the fact that it's been 20 years since a new drug was approved and these patients' survival is measured in a matter of months and less than 5% of GBM patients live five years, I think that was probably the one that tugged on a different side of the psyche. It wasn't the business side, it was the emotional human side. And I thought I could actually do something and there is a... Tremendous gratification that can be gained from uh, trying to and hopefully succeeding in getting a new treatment and giving these patients hope. When someone who doesn't know you professionally, you meet them for the first time, they say, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? That's actually an easy answer now. I, I am an executive in a biotechnology company that's in the late, late stages of getting a new treatment out for uh, oncology patients whose current treatment just doesn't work. And uh, the, the disease is GBM. It's the deadliest form of brain cancer. I was talking to a, a founder, I believe it was, maybe been founder and CEO, like six months ago for a pot for BioBoss. And I was asking him that question, what do you do for a living? And he said, he laughed and he said, well, it used to be that it, my wife kind of understood what I did, but she, he said, now that I work at home temporarily because of the coronavirus and she works at home because of the coronavirus, she came up to me one day and said, is that all you do all day? You just talk on the phone all day? So if I were to say, what do you do all day from that perspective? What, what's, what's, what is your job? What do you do for a living? Then how would you answer it that way? I would say currently about a third of my time um, is spent on video Zoom calls because of the lack of travel. As, an, as a CEO of a public company, uh, informing the market, informing your shareholders, keeping bringing in new shareholders is at least 50% of the job. And we can't travel. We used to go to New York City, one week roadshow, you meet 100 people and, and you do face to face. So Zoom and these uh, video conferences have replaced that. So I spend at least a third of my time talking to existing and new investors, educate them about the company. A third is spent on the telephone managing the company. And the other third is really spent on uh, making sure management and the board, and we have a lot of outside uh, consultants, contracts, et cetera, know not to chase the sh next shiny object. How to keep focus, how to stay focused on that which delivers value. So tell me about what it's like to be disciplined enough to resist the next shiny object. It's difficult and it's difficult on a personal level, but sometimes it's much more difficult on the cultural level. Because when you go into a company who's hired 100 people and 10 are working on this project and 10 on that one and 10 on this one, and you inevitably want to focus, that means some projects just can't, you can't have 10 number one priorities in my view. I think when you do, then you're leaving the strategic execution of the company down to the individual employee. They decide what's number one. A leader's role is to, to say, here's our number one, here's our number two. We ran out of resources. There is no number three. There is no number five. Because when you do that, the number one doesn't get fed. The most likely to succeed now gets undernourished. So it's, it's the cultural part of it that's harder, I think. 
can you remember when you were eight or nine or 10, what you wanted to be, maybe what your parents wanted you to be? And then does that have anything to do, you know, what will you be when you grow up? Does that have anything to do with what you're doing now? No, it, it's an in incredibly good question. And no, I had no clue. It's really interesting because I know I have friends who they knew what college they wanted to go to when they were nine years old and they knew what career I had. I was clueless. I had no idea. And I lived a pretty tumultuous life with my mom living, leaving and being without her for seven years, et cetera, when I was six years old. So I started deciding what I wanted to do when I was about 15, 16. And I actually, uh, oddly enough, wanted to become a photographer, a fashion photographer. I'd get a job and it would pay great uh, and I would live off of it for a few weeks instead of a few months and then I'd be scrounging again. And I went back to my computer science and engineering background and fell into computer vision as a job and one thing led to the other. But this was not planned. Other than, you know, being a leader in the organization as a follower, the rest of it was not planned. It was just one thing led to the other. And I found out I'm incredibly good operationally. Uh, most of the CEOs I have worked for in the past on the board think of me as one of the most efficient uh, managers in the, in the, they have ever seen in uh, translating uh, little cash into lots of results. And that comes out of paying attention to the grungy details comes out of waking up and taking that challenge and doing the things you don't really like to do. And what you know is painful and status meetings and hearing bad news. One of my philosophies, one of my um, management tools that I tell my staff is, tell me issues as soon as possible. Because then I can change the perception, I can change the goals, I can bring additional resources. But if you tell me too late, We've squandered opportunity. So don't be afraid of bad news. And I really try and enforce that because it's that bad news and what you do about it that I think distinguishes success from failure. And there's always going to be bad news. doesn't matter what business you're in, maybe much more profoundly in biotech. Said, what's new at Kintara? We have initiated a registration study for our lead indication in GVM. That was a major accomplishment on ma many, many levels. And in my opinion, um, this program, uh, which is being executed by a group called Global Coalition for Adaptive Research, in my opinion, is the world's best GBM trial design and execution plan. And we are now invited to join this group of people who've been doing this for four years. So they initiated a nonprofit organization, their goal, is twofold. One, to reduce the cost and timelines for drug development. This was a response in 2017 about the cries about the cost of drugs going up and the timelines that the pharmaceuticals have to absorb. So 130 clinicians got together and decided to form Global Coalition for Adaptive Research. And that simply is a group of people who want to use a tool called adaptive trial design to accelerate drug development. Lucky for us, some of their principles were GBM-centric. So the first indication they tried to go after is GBM. From 2017 to now, they have sent, uh, worked on uh, 
financing from National Brain Tumor Society, from National Foundation for Cancer Research, American Foundation for Cancer Research, and, um, and not commercial money. But they advanced the cause of the organization by submitting an adaptive design plan to the FDA and getting the highest level of support and approval for it. Then uh, initiating the effort to sign on all the hospitals on the site that would enroll for this study. As of this week, they have 33 sites that are enrolling for GBM patients. And what happened this week was we announced that we are initiated patient uh, enrollment and patient um, stratification in this study, number one. And number two, Kintara had the I guess the unique situation of being invited to join all three patient groups in this trial. The trial has three separate patient groups, recurrent setting, adjuvant with a biomarker called MGMT unmethylated, which is 60% of the patients. And they have a much poorer outcome than the other 40% that don't have this biomarker. Um, We are the only one that's going into all three patient groups. And if I was going to do this as Kintaro alone, I would have to run three separate trials. I would have to probably work for the next year to get an FDA-approved study designed and approved. And then it would take a year to two years to sign up the 33 sites that GCAR has already signed up. By joining this coalition, we actually start enrolling at 33 sites very, very quickly on an FDA-approved design that has some of the world's best uh, clinical designers designing it. It has some of the world's best, if not the world's best statistician group that did the statistical analysis. So we get the benefit of all that, and that news just came out yesterday. I'm very excited. I think this is a major accomplishment. And earlier asked about sort of the personal goal. The personal side of this, in addition to obviously trying to accelerate a new treatment for GBM patients, is if we, as one of the small companies in this trial, can show this system works, we might fundamentally change uh, the way some of drug development and discovery is done because we will have shown that this platform that we can compete with the bigger multi-billion dollar companies, I think we might be able to put a bigger impact than just the the large impact to GBM patients, but changing and enhancing the paradigm of drug development and accelerating the the drug development for many, many drugs. And that's GCAR's goal. And it's good that we have the unique position of going to all three patient groups, because for us at Kentara, it gives us three shots on goal. Uh, we could succeed in any of those GBM patient groups. And if we get some uh, tailwind, favorable tailwinds, we could succeed in all three. Saeed, how would you describe the mechanism of action for the drugs that you're developing? Uh, they're obviously different. Uh, they're for two different indications, two completely different drugs. So I'll go individually through each one. On Val-083, it's what's called a uh, bifunctional uh, DNA uh, targeting agent. And that means it goes to the DNA strand. And whereas the current approved drug, temozolomide, breaks a single strand of the DNA, uh, our drug actually breaks the cross strand. And this enzyme I earlier mentioned repairs that single strand damage, but it cannot repair the damage that we do to the uh, cancer cell. 
So it's, it's really uh, our CSO, Dennis Brown, who in licensed it, is fond of saying we are actually punching with both hands versus the current therapy has a one hand tied behind its back. REM001, which is a second asset, is a completely different and science fiction. You uh, are given an injection of this drug. It's a photodynamic activated uh, drug. And 24 hours later, the patient comes back and we activate the drug on a local lesion basis by a simple red laser light that penetrates the layer of the tissue. So in one case, we're breaking the DNA strand and breaking the cross strand and keeping the cell from replicating. In the other case, we're activating a drug that creates oxygen radicals like radiation does on a local basis via this laser, but without the side effects of radiation, which is burning of the tissue and permanent damage to the and there's actually a video on our website that explains this. And I encourage anybody who listens to this, go into the presentation section of our website. There's a video that talks about um, our approach to CMBC and how this drug works. And it's incredibly interesting. It's, it's um, really, and it's easy to understand. What kinds of partners are a good fit to Kintara? So two different kinds of partners, I think, are relevant. One is the scientific community and the clinical trial community whose belief in us and who's working with us does two things. First, it adds credibility. And number two, it actually enables you to do the best job possible especially for a company like ours where we are small. You know, it's one thing for BMS or Bayer. You know, they have a lot of staff. They have a tremendous amount of expertise. They can throw lots of money. We don't have the same resources. So having partners that fill that role is important. And towards that end, in 2019, I actually embarked on enhancing our scientific external partnerships. We recruited Dr. John DeGroote, who at the time was at our interim chairman of uh, neuro-oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We recruited Dr. David Reardon, who is uh, chairman of the uh, Department of Neuro-Oncology at Dana-Farber, and uh, Tim Clawessy at uh, David Geffen School. And it's amazing how one thing leads to another if you take the right steps. Um, so I recruited five highly qualified scientific advisory members to really escalate the scientific and the, the clinical trial planning going forward. The people I just mentioned have hundreds of clinical trials to their name. You know, at some point, uh, I hope to be able to partner one of these compounds with an oncology that has a sales franchise that can sell the heck out of it. When you're interacting with those three groups, you just described those three kinds of partners. What, what have you learned about your management style in, in connecting with those people? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? I am a very open CEO. I overshare information because I honestly believe how can a team, especially look, especially now, it used to be you were in the same building, you were in the same conference room, you would walk next door and a problem. Now you have to set up a conference call, you have to get people's schedules together and you're remote. It's much more complicated now operating a business than it was, but we've gotten good and used to it. And I think uh, what I do is I overshare information because that's the only way. If they understand my goals, my problems, the company's goals, the company's problems, then they can contribute. And that's why by having the CEO specifically tell people on a regular basis and communicate with them and keep track of it does two things. First, 
it ensures everybody knows what the number one goal is. It ensures everybody knows what number two is. But also it allows me to hear early about issues. You still have the time while you're doing that. You still have the time to think to yourself, you know, if this thing works, I'm going to bring a lot of hope to people who have GBM, other illnesses you're working on. Can you still imagine that or are you just so locked into getting it done? No, it's it's actually, it's a, it's a really good question. So mornings, I wake up at around 5 a.m just organically. And the dumb days where I decide to stay in bed for an extra half an hour, an hour is actually bad because I'm lying there nervous, thinking about it. My heart's pounding. I think about all the things I've got to do. So I found that get out of bed and go to work because then you get rid of the tension. You're actually doing something about it, right? Uh, but I think the, the key here uh, is, is uh, using that GBM as a self-motivator. I mentioned earlier that many CEO roles are a lonesome role. Now, I've also been in companies where the company was succeeding despite itself. It wasn't lonely. It was you couldn't do wrong, right? Computer vision. You couldn't do wrong. Our stock would go up to $80 split and go up to $80 and split. Um, we own the market. It just We couldn't do wrong. But that's not true everywhere. Most places, there's things that go off the rails. You have to fix things, et cetera. And I think I use the, the GBM paradigm and also cutaneous metastatic breast cancer. I've seen photos. I know patients who have it. It's really devastating to suffer from these things. I have learned how to use those as motivating tools to get out of bed and go do something, even though I may not want to do it because it's just boring or stressful or whatever. It's it's a great way to kind of say there's a grander calling. This isn't just about share prices or expenses and raising money. This is a higher calling of trying to get a treatment and that gets me to get out of bed with a spring in my step and a hope and optimism that, um, that defeats the, the dark gray days. Thanks for making time to speak with me today, Saeed. It was my pleasure. This was a very enjoyable conversation. The first thing that came up in my conversation with Saeed Zarabian was the loneliness of a CEO in biopharma. It wasn't it's lonely at the top, which I'm sure is a reality for many CEOs, but the sobering fact that, as Saeed said, you have the weight of the world on your shoulders, people's lives and quality of life. That weight might slow down some of us. Saeed's solution is pragmatic. Make a list each morning and check the things off as they get done and what doesn't get done goes on to tomorrow's list. Saeed said, paying attention to the grungy details comes out of waking up and taking that challenge and doing the things you don't really like to do. You get rid of the tension, you're actually doing something. Attention to detail sounds like a key to Saeed's success over the years. He likes to say he's determined not to chase the next shiny object but stay focused on his strategy for delivering value. And like many people whose families have been afflicted with cancer, Saeed can't help but see the big picture, the need for new cancer treatments. As he says, it gets me out of bed with a spring in my step and a hope and optimism that defeats the dark gray days. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. <laughs>